Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Monica. So we have spent 36 episodes talking about how to work with someone, how to build better rapport, how to collaborate, how to move past our own roadblocks, the patient's roadblocks to recovery. And we realized that what we haven't talked about is when PT isn't the answer. So (laughs) Sammy, what are some of your ideas? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's just so important for us to remember that that is an option, first of all. I mean, we put so much pressure on ourselves to say, we got to fix this person and we got to provide the exact right treatment for them. But sometimes we need to take a step back and go, okay, maybe this person isn't the most appropriate for our care. And maybe that's just they're not appropriate, period. Or maybe it's that they're not appropriate right now. The first thought I have that I think is an easy one to get out of the way is medical red flags, right? Like that's a Mm -hmm. pretty easy one for us to say. If we see a medical red flag that is not within our scope of practice, we got to refer them back to another provider, send them to the ER, whatever is appropriate for whatever we see. I love this, this quote from the JOSPT, which is, our evaluation is for us to gain enough certainty that initiating physical therapy treatment will not delay a patient's access to more appropriate health services. Right. So we can't pretend that we're going to fix a medical red flag and we need to be screening for it. We're not going to talk about how to screen for it in this episode. That's not our intent. But make sure that you have that system of checks and balances in your evaluation. Because if you do miss something, you delay care, or you're promising someone that you can work on something which you really can't, it's going to affect their quality of life and their outcomes. So we got to have that built into our evaluation. And the last thing I'll say is keep reassessing. You know, Mm -hmm. red flags aren't just a one-time thing they can come up at any point while we work together. Yep, absolutely. The next thing that I would say is a reason to discontinue PT is anything that would impair the patient's ability to participate in PT. And the first thing that pops into my mind is psych issues. Monica, I'm curious how this has come up for you in your practice or what kind of psych issues you've observed limiting your patient's ability to participate in PT. Yeah, that's a great question, Sammy. I think of it like not what is the diagnosis, but what is the person in front of me presenting like. So that's the one thing I've learned over my career is I I used to like see the problem list, right? And be like, oh my gosh, depression, anxiety, ADHD, you know, whatever is in there and think to myself, wow, this is going to be a really hard patient. And to some extent, that's true, but I've learned over time that sometimes those are the best patients to work with. They've got the medication or Mm -hmm. the therapist and they've got the support. You know, they know how to manage what they're working with. And then there's other people who have none of that in their problem list, but maybe (laughs) it's because they're not diagnosed or maybe it's because they're not pursuing the care that they actually need. So my takeaway here would be, If you're finding that they have untreated psych issues, now we don't diagnose those, 
But if you know that they're talking about depression or talking about anxiety with you or talking about a history of trauma, that's a big one we hear about. And it is really real and active for them. And it's something that's impacting the way they show up in PT. Then we need to help them get care. And sometimes we just label it stress. So what are your experiences in that? I would totally agree with your point that you've got to look at the person in front of you. I, I think back to one of my patients who I'll admit, like I saw the diagnosis of schizophrenia on his medical history and had some assumptions about that. And he ended up being a wonderful patient, like super engaged in the process and very willing to participate in therapy. So that, you know, that was a good lesson for me that you have to look at the person in front of you. But I, I think that you're you're right about sometimes we get these people that come in and there is just something psychological in the way of what we're doing. Mm. Um, I think about this one patient I had who came in for back pain and we started doing the evaluation and halfway through she just started bawling like out of the blue. It was it was so strange. Like we weren't talking about anything traumatic or we, you know, we weren't really even talking that much at that point. We were kind of going through our exam and she just started bawling. And I, you know, had her pause, sat her down, gave her a Kleenex, asked her what was wrong. And she just started kind of unloading all of these issues that she had been having in her relationship with her family. And as I kind of talked to her about this, I was like, so do you feel like this is related to the pain you've been having? And she said, oh my gosh, yeah, I got so much worse when I had all these issues with my family. And at that point, after we were finished with the exam, I was like, hey, so we can work on your back pain, but it sounds like you're already aware of how much your family issues are affecting you. I don't think we're going to get super far unless you get some support for this. And she was like totally on board, said, you know, I really think I, I do need somebody to talk to. I feel very alone, was very agreeable to a referral to a psychologist. So that was a great example, I think, for me of somebody who is right on board with that. It's not always so easy. Sometimes there's more resistance to it or sometimes people are, they don't react as well. But that was an example of somebody who it really interrupted our flow of what we were doing. And it was clearly something that was at the forefront of her mind. And we couldn't continue with the session until we like s took a second to talk about that. So that's somebody that kind of sticks out to me recently, who I think had some, it's not even really what I'd call an undiagnosed psych issue. It's more just like somebody who had some psychological factors mm -hmm. that were yep. really affecting them. Yeah. So they mentioned the psychosocial factors, and it's really cool how you handled it, Sammy. Like, it sounds like you were very empathetic, and you're able to bring up that these factors are going to affect her without making it seem like the pain was in her head. And that is a hard thing to do sometimes <laughs> yeah. when it comes to like this psych and refer out. Is we don't want to tell someone that you know their brain is making up the pain even though their brain is the thing that ultimately perceives the pain and the psychological factors happen in the same brain. Like the mm -hmm. same nervous system is the one that is shaping your psychology and shaping your pain. And that's the way I like to think of it rather than like either or. It's just the same body. And sometimes we need help bringing that nervous system down. And we can do a lot in physical therapy. But if someone's participation is affected, I think we got to call it what it is, which kind of goes into the next idea we brainstormed. And that's when there's anything that gets in the way of them meaningfully participating in PT. 
And this is not limited to psych, although I think it would fall there. This is people who don't have the time in their schedule right now. This is people who are not ready to make that behavior change for probably unlimited number of reasons, (laughs) right? And this is something we need to be realistic with ourselves about, right? When when people are starting to not show up for their appointments or, you know, they cancel and then they no-show, then they reschedule, cancel, no-show, reschedule, we got to look at the patterns. Yeah. I'm curious, do you have a protocol that you follow or a set of expectations that you follow in in order to determine when someone's really canceled too many times or has rescheduled too many times or is really not participating to a meaningful extent? Like, how do you define that for yourself? Oh, that's such a good, good question. You kind of had a few questions in there, so I'll try to cover them all. How do I define someone's not meaningfully participating? I mean, this is like a minimum standard that will kind of vary from person to person for me. But essentially, during each evaluation, I ask myself at this point, like, what do I really believe they need to do to get better? You know, and if it's strengthening, it's going to be two to three times a week of doing their exercise program. And I only prescribe two to three exercises. So if they don't have the time for that and they're not able to do it at all between our visits, and that continues to be a pattern, that would be not meeting the minimum, right? For somebody else, it might be that they need to do something daily, whether it's like a range of motion exercise for a condition or whether it's stretches or something else. So I kind of asked myself, what is the minimum that I as a PT know would give them meaningful change? And if they're not meeting that minimum, I don't compromise it anymore. I'm not like, okay, let's Mm -hmm. pick one exercise for you to do for one minute twice a week. Like, that's not enough. (laughs) You know, it just isn't. And I used to kind of compromise down and compromise down and try to like find anything that this person can do. And now when I find myself trying to pare it down, it's like if I hit that minimum, then I just tell them like, and I kind of say it in the evaluation. I actually do say it in each evaluation now is, you know, the minimum for you to do this and see change is going to be blank and I fill in whatever it is. And if you do less than that, then we don't know whether the exercises aren't working or whether it's that you didn't do enough of them. So it's going to be hard for us to make changes. And I I leave it there. Now, I think your other questions like the cancellation and the no-show, if someone no-shows, I stop chasing them down after the second time it happens twice I'll send a message, but the second time I don't offer up my schedule. I ask them when they're free. So the first time I'll message and, you know, within 10 minutes, if they're not there, I'm messaging my patient, you know, hey, we had an appointment today. Here's the time. Here's the link because I'm all virtual. Um, If they can hop on, great. I've had two recently where like they missed it. Then they're like, oh my God, let's reschedule. When are you free? And I send them my availability, we reschedule, they make one, and then they miss the next one. (laughs) And so on the second one, like I said, I still message them, hey, we had an appointment today, here's the link. And then I kind of leave it on them. Like if they reply back to me, okay. And if they're like, oh my God, I missed it, da da da. I'm like, when are you free? What days and times this week or next week are you available? And I'll book the visit. 
because I'm like, you have to put in the minimum. I'm not going to keep giving you all of my appointments and you filling up space on the schedule when this is already a pattern, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because I found that like everyone has a day where they miss something. And those patients that just miss that one day, you know, they come into the visit like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. They're willing to put in that effort. They're like, when is your next visit? I can make this time. These other people, you know, maybe they don't even message me back for a few days. And then they're like, oh, no, it happened again. And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's no shade on them. But I need to see that effort. And that's where I'm like, I'm not going to be mad at them. I'm not going to be like, I invoke our cancellation policy or anything. I do take insurance, you know, so I could imagine that would be different in private practice. You might have that type of cancellation policy. But I'm just like, okay, I see how we're going back and forth here. I see it's a pattern. I'm here if you're willing to put in the effort, but I am no longer going to be chasing you down. Yeah. So did that answer? Did that totally, answer? Totally. Yeah. 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 That's helpful. I'm, I'm with you there on the I'm not going to chase you down thing. I'm actually, I mean, I have a different type of clinic setup than you do. I don't work in telehealth. And for those patients that no show or cancel, I mean, depending on if they have a cancellation fee to pay or something like that, that changes whether the front desk is going to track them down, certainly. But I, I also agree that I'm not going to spend the time to keep calling when someone is not engaged. Like, I don't have the time for that. And frankly, I can't care more than they do. So I, right. I don't really spend the energy. Like, if they're going to, if they want PT, they'll call back. That's kind of how I see it. Like, if they really want to come in, if they need the care, they will call the clinic and schedule an appointment. And then if they don't show up to that appointment, then they're going to have a late fee to pay, you know? And I, I think that it's a little bit challenging when you're constrained by the policies of where you work too. I know I worked somewhere in the past that had a cancellation policy of the person can no show, I think it was like three times. And then on the fourth time, they would finally discharge the case. And I had people who would book out tons of appointments and then not show up to any of them and just completely drop off the schedule. And it really affected my caseload and it made it hard for my other patients to get appointments. And that really frustrated me too. So I feel like Mm -hmm. it'd be great to have an avenue to address that earlier. Yeah. And there's no perfect answer, right? Because sometimes you only book a visit or two at a time to prevent that. But then Mm -hmm. if you get really full, can people actually come in and see you? So I feel like that's a whole nother episode (laughs) for us is, you know, managing your patient caseload. But another thing that falls under this broad category of like meaningful participation, I think, is also availability. If someone can't make it to your appointments because you literally don't have time that works for them, then working with someone else is going to be a better answer. You know, sometimes they're not doing it on purpose, but it really does not work for their schedule. So there's other options. There's asynchronous options. There's telehealth options. There's in-person options. You know, there's there's people that will come to your home for mobile or concierge. So I think we live in a, a really cool time right now where we have more access to PT than we've ever had before. And if someone needs times that you really don't have, help them find something else or let them know that there are other options. It might be that simple. Yeah, absolutely. I think one other thing that falls under our umbrella of 
anything that would prevent a patient from participating meaningfully. It would also just be their expectations versus what you are able slash willing to provide them. Mm-hmm. I think I've been, I think we've all encountered this. Somebody comes in and they want a lot of passive treatment. They want modalities and they want manual and maybe those are not things that you provide frequently. I skew more towards very, very minimal modalities and very minimal manual therapy. And mm-hmm. so uh, when I have a patient who comes in and is is really expecting or demanding those things, it's not going to be a great fit. (laughs) That's just like the simple, the simple answer there. Like if they expect those things, I don't feel like I am providing the best care to them because I don't really believe in modalities as a long-term source of meaningful change. And so I just don't think that it's going to be a fruitful relationship in that case. What do you think? Well, how do you handle that is my follow-up because we've all been there. So I'm curious, like, what you say or how you navigate that situation. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the patient, certainly. If there is a patient who is willing to exercise and willing to engage in in the things that I think would help them, but they also go, hey, you know, I've really had a lot of benefit from ultrasound in the past. Could we do that? You know, sometimes I might be flexible about that. I'm also a big believer in the placebo effect. So if they found a lot of benefit in something, I mean, if it's a very minimal piece of the treatment and they are also doing other things that I think will help them, I'm willing to be a little more flexible. Mm. Now, if we have somebody who comes in and they're like, that's all I want to do is ultrasound and I want you to rub me, I might say to this person, you know, in my research, I have seen that these types of passive treatments typically don't provide a lot of long-term change. I don't provide them to the level that it seems like you're looking for. These are the things that I can offer you. Would you like to continue working with me or would you like to have a referral to somebody who does more of those things? Mm -hmm. And just like set a boundary, you know, because I can't practice in a way that makes me uncomfortable. I just won't do it. Right. You know, so I think, I think there's some gray there. How do you handle that? Or I guess, how did you handle that when you were in a more traditional clinic setting? You have the luxury of being like, I don't do modalities because I'm hundreds of miles away from you. (laughs) You're right. I haven't had to have this conversation in a year and a half. You know, I I tried to find the sweet spot because like you, I, I do believe in placebo. So I might be doing manual therapy, but talking with them about fear avoidance or talking about, you know, the benefits of of exercise or something else and see if I can change those beliefs. If they're asking for a specific technique that I don't do, then letting them know, like, I don't do that. Or maybe we need to find a massage therapist who's going to do myofascial release on you because I'm not going to do that, right? Of course, I don't, usually say, I'm not going to do that. But I would say, you know, it'd be better if we found this type of provider and they do that for you. And then we work on this part. And are you okay with it? I am curious about your statement of the research, you know, showing this doesn't help long term. Like, how do you navigate being honest with your belief, but maybe not being nocebic in a no, you know, hard. like because it's kind of like a behavior change thing, right? Yeah. Like, are they willing to hear that? Because it could spark something great, or is it going to be like kind of a shutdown thing? 
Yeah, for sure. I think when I'm when I'm firing on all cylinders and I'm really careful about my phrasing, I might say something like the research tells us that exercise is more effective. Mm. Maybe not necessarily that ultrasound isn't at all, even though I'm <laughs> more biased in that direction. But um, again, a totally separate topic. But yeah, I think that's that's a great point. It's not necessarily putting that in their head of this isn't going to work. I mean, I had a patient ask me the other day about whether I thought essential oils would help her pain. Mm. And I was like, you know, my, my right. gut wants to be like, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, I, think I, I think I handled it okay. I think I said, you know, um, I haven't seen any research on that from my background. I, I don't know much about it, but I'm a big believer in that you know, if there's something that makes you feel better, feel more relaxed, it might be beneficial to you in some way. I always tell people with this kind of thing, try it and see how it goes. Yeah. Right. Yes. If it's, if it's something I don't think is going to hurt them, you know, essential right. oils are not going to hurt this person unless they're like ingesting them by or the something. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, if it's, yeah, I, I think that if it's something like that, I just say, go and try it. It's it's probably fine. It's not going to hurt you unless I feel strongly like if there's somebody who I think has a fracture and they're like wanting to go get cavitations at the chiropractor. I'm like, ooh, maybe not. <laughs> you know, right. like that, That's something where I'm going to be like, definitely do not do that. You know, <laughs> but if it's something like essential oils, I'm like, eh, it's OK. Try it out. You know, yeah. so I think that's that's the ideal. I don't I. I can't say I'm always perfect with that. I know I have my own biases. And sometimes when people ask me questions, I I hope they can't see it on my face, but they might be able to. <laughs> yep. I totally know what you're saying. And I, I think any of us would be lying if we pretended like we have not been there or said something to a patient like, hell no, that is not going to work. Yeah. Um, so no judgment. No judgment, Sammy. <laughs> Uh, but our next idea for when to discontinue PT is when they're not making progress in a reasonable time frame. My thoughts on this one are like three to four visits or four to mm. six weeks. So it could be more visits if it's once a week, right? But if we haven't seen any change by four, definitely by six weeks, something's got to give. Either they don't have the support they need to be able to make this. It's not really either or, but they may not have the support that they need. They might be paired up with someone where it's not working, like the the therapeutic alliance or, or something there is missing, or you don't have the expertise that you need to progress them well. It usually takes a little bit longer when you're starting off with something, you know, when you're new and you're pathfinding. But in four to six weeks, there's got to be meaningful change. So I'm doing my reassessment at the third or fourth visit, which is roughly four weeks for me, sometimes definitely within a month, definitely within a month. You know, there's got to be change because if they're not participating, then we also need to talk about that. That might be a reason they haven't made change, but we need to bring it to the forefront. What are your thoughts? I... I think I'm still pathfinding, like you said, you know, as a new grad, still trying to figure out how efficient can I be with this type of case, with this type of condition. I, I think that my confidence with that changes depending on how confident I feel treating a certain thing. You know what I mean? So totally. if I'm not feeling super confident treating like constipation or whatever, I may wait longer 
I'm not saying that's a good thing. I actually think it's better to see the signs early that something's not working and do something different. I mean, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? Um, So I think that I would like to operate more that way. And I notice that seems to be a function of my confidence as a provider. I'm curious, what, what sorts of things do you use as meaningful change? Like, is it functional outcome measures? Is it impairment level things, you know, range of motion measurements, all of the above? Like, what are you using and how much change is meaningful enough? Mm, and dicey questions. I love it. Um, <laughs> so when I do my full reassessment at usually the third or fourth visit, I am looking for overall change and in no particular order because it might vary from person to person. But if they're coming in for pain, that they've had a two point or greater change on the numeric pain rating scale because that is a minimal clinically important difference. So if they haven't met that, we haven't made meaningful change in their pain. And maybe that's not the primary goal, right? If they've had super persistent pain, but then... I'm looking at their concordant signs. Are they getting better on those, right? So are they having less pain with it? Are they having better movement? I always write the concordant sign as whatever triggered their pain and then the pain level right there so that I have even more measures Mm. to look at, right? Because maybe their average pain is similar, but with their single leg squat, it went from a six to a four. So now I know we're headed in the right direction, So anything that reproduces their pain, I do ask them for a pain number there because it has helped me be even more specific, you know, because sometimes they're like, oh, it still hurts, but it went from a five to a two. It's like, well, yeah, then what we're doing is working, right? Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. And then I look at functional outcome measures and I'm looking for meaningful changes there. And the three I collect are always a body part specific one. Um, because I am doing orthopedics also. So whether it's the PFDI or, you know, LEFS or whatever, fear avoidance and then pain catastrophizing. Because I have noticed times where their fear avoidance has dropped. You know, it's gone from a 66 to a 23 and their pain catastrophizing has gotten better. And maybe we've had some small changes in those other two areas. And I'm like, okay, this tells me we're still headed in the right direction. Let's give it a couple more sessions, right? And then progress towards their goals is the last one. If I wrote meaningful goals that were important to them, then on visit four, when I ask them about their progress towards their goals, it should be something, right? And it could (laughs) be, and it's always interesting. Sometimes it's like they rate it way lower and I think they're functioning better or maybe they're functioning better than I thought they were or were in line. But it's also a good time because if I go through their goals there and they're like, oh, I don't really do that. It's like, okay, that I, maybe I missed the mark, right? Like (laughs) maybe, and I've had to learn that. Like just yesterday I had an evaluation and she was like, yeah, I want to swim without pain. And I know she lives in California and I know it's cold and I know that there's not a ton of pools, right? There's a lot of like outdoor pools. So I said, are you going to be swimming in the next few months? I'm just curious because this might be a long-term goal and not a short-term goal for PT. And she's like, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to have access to a pool. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, that's not a goal, right? Because I've I've learned over time. 
people might like, yeah, I want to snowboard, but it's April. Like, where are you going to go snowboarding, right? Like, we're not going to work together for nine months. So the goals is the last part. And my, my ultimate question is always, since the time you started PT, how much progress would you say you've made from zero? You're at the same place, no change to 100, which is what you think of as a full recovery. And that is kind of my other number. Maybe if I'm struggling with some of those things or if I just am not sure how much they believe in their recovery. So I won't ask that with everybody, but there was a time where I used to and I still use it. And I love that question, you know, because they'll be like 60 percent. I'm like, okay, what would get you the last 40 percent? And they could pretty much tell me what the rest of my plan of care needs to be, right? It's like, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I need to run three miles or I, you know, want to be able to lift my son and not feel any pain. And it's like, well, okay, now we know what the last few weeks of treatment need to be or, you know, the next phase of treatment. So yes, if there's an MCID, I will follow that MCID. If there isn't an MCID, then our, I guess for everything I listed, I was talking about the MCID. So yeah, I I would really go off of that. Yeah, that's a great answer. I really like that. And I feel like it's sounding to me, correct me if I'm wrong, like you want to see improvement in some of those, but not necessarily all of them right away. But Mm -hmm. if you're looking across the board and nothing's really different or, you know, I occasionally will get these people who come in and they'll tell me like, oh my gosh, I just feel so much better. But then I measure everything and... They, nothing's changed. Like nothing's changed. And I'm kind of like, are you just telling me that? Or like, you know, did I change how you felt about your pain? Or, you know, and I think there's some value to that, you know, like if I if I measure a pain catastrophizing and fear avoidance scale and that's like the only thing they improved on, I still see that as a success. Like if I made them yeah. less afraid to move, I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> you know, ideally I want to change other things too. I think the functional outcome measure would be ideal or progress towards their functional goals. But if I don't see any change there and they're saying, oh, I'm exactly the same, that's a conversation for sure. And I, I like that you're you're creating a really clear framework around that for yourself because it's really easy for us to get biased with certain patients. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like some patients maybe don't seem like they're trying that hard or maybe they maybe they even remind you of someone who you treated in the past who didn't work that hard or maybe they're trying really hard, but they're just not sharing as much of that with you. They're not as open about it. We always have these assumptions about people, I think, that are inherent. And so if we're treating everyone differently and we're reassessing at different times and we don't have that clear three to four visit, six to eight week framework where you're reassessing objectively, I think we can kind of get bogged down. So I love that you're making that a hard line for yourself because I think that takes a lot of the bias out of it. And I've had to learn over time, to your point. I mean, the only reason I have such a clear system for myself now is because of the sheer amount of times that I saw people for five, six, seven, eight visits, only to realize at visit five, six, seven, eight that, oh my God, we have made minimal progress, if any progress. And what have I been doing? And it's that um, one, I didn't know probably enough about the diagnosis and I was trying all the things and not sticking with anything. And then two, I wasn't really sure on, on what we needed to reassess. And I was kind of chasing them around. And some people will say to you, you know, I'm worse. And 
it's like they forgot how much worse they used to be and they're having a bad day. And so they're telling you about that day, how their shoulder hurts, but everything else has gotten better. And that's been the cool part of this. And then other times it's just helped me see like with some of those psychological patients we've talked about, like something else must be getting in the way because we have tried for four visits and we haven't seen progress and they're not necessarily open or following through or they are following through and there's no change. And so we need some additional help. And this is stuff I've picked up from working with other PTs as well and and seeing like their very clear threshold. So define those guidelines for yourself because if you don't have them, I mean, it is easy to be at visit eight or 10 and be kind of looking at it like what happened here. Yeah. And I'll say too that sometimes PT just isn't going to help. It's just not going to help. Sometimes what helps them is a medication or a surgery or something else that we are not able to provide them. I think that PT can help in a lot of cases, but not for everyone. And I've had patients who finally got the relief they were looking for from an injection or a surgery or something. And I think that if we wait too long, we're delaying that care that might help them more. Back to the first point. Yep. Yep. So yeah, that's my final thought on that. But I, I will definitely be taking some notes from what you just said about your reassessment. <laughs> I love that paradigm that you have. So I'm I'm kind of uh, squirreling that away for myself too. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm glad it helped. The last thing that came to mind for me on when to discontinue care is something we don't like to talk about, but it is patient rudeness, sexual harassment, racism. I mean, you you put it in this box, whatever it is. But that may be a reason for you to stop. For example, I had one patient four years ago where he called me baby during the entire evaluation. And the first time he did (laughs) it. So gross. That's a great response. Yeah. yeah. I hate it. Ew. Ew, ew, ew. ew. He called me baby and I was like, what? And I'm like, I go by Dr. Monica or Dr. Stefanovich. Those are your options. I am not baby. And I said it that clearly. And he kept saying baby. And I kept redirecting him. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to finish this evaluation because he's already here, right? And the moment I finished, I left him in the room. I stepped out. I went to the front desk and I said, listen, I'm about to bring this guy up to you. And he cannot be scheduled with any female therapist in any of the clinic locations that we have. Because this was a large hospital base. I was like, male therapist only. And my preference is that he does not come back to this location. And um, I don't think he ever scheduled a follow-up because, I mean, I worked there Monday through Friday and I never saw the guy again. And I ended up telling the, the manager too, if this was my private practice, I probably, at this point in my career, I would have cut off the evaluation after the second baby and just said, sir, if you can't respect my title, I'm not going to be completing this evaluation. And, you know, I would have cut it off or whatever it was. But I do think it's not that often, hopefully, that we have patients who are just flat out rude to us, rude to our staff, our aides, our front desk. But it happens. And there are people who are dealing with racist comments, homophobic comments. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. And we have to have this baseline of respect and decency. 
you know, and hopefully your organization really supports you in that too. If they don't, that is a massive red flag because there should be some type of policy around it. And that might be something you bring up. You bring up with your company, you say, hey, if somebody treats me like this, what are the action steps I can take? What will you all support in that experience? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that sounds so gross. I just like my my continued reaction is just ew. I've I know I've had a few people like that as well. But I I think that we are not here for abuse. <laughs> like period. No. We're here to I, help. I do not come to work to get abused. I do not I, I don't get paid enough for that shit. Like I just I'm not here for it. It's, it's different if somebody is a little bit irritated or you know anything like that, but if somebody starts moving into really rude abusive language or they raise their voice at me we're done like that's it I've had a handful of patients get really frustrated about certain things I had a patient yell at me recently about something with the front desk and I was like we're finished with the session I cut it off it was like you know you're not allowed to raise your voice at me like that and I think that that's a really clear boundary we need to hold because people will push it sometimes yeah and there's some systems where Sometimes I think we need a job. There's not so many jobs available. You encounter people who are going to be belligerent and like that. And what breaks my heart is to think that those jobs are still like, well, you got to go in and see them, you know, like toughen up or just push through it, just ignore it. Like, I know that we want to help. So I can understand finishing a session with someone. But why would you have to keep going back in and seeing them? And that's where we need system-wide change to make those things not okay, to preserve the well-being of all of the therapists and all of the healthcare providers in different fields so that they're not having to deal with this because you're already exerting so much emotional labor working with people and trying to help them regain their health. You do not need to be dealing with abuse, rudeness all of that directed towards you, directed towards you. It's one thing if someone is just angry in general and having their own emotional experience, that is already hard enough to deal with. But to be directed towards you, that's a hard line. That's a hard boundary. So to wrap things up, those are all the reasons we could think of. There might be others. And if there are, we'd love to hear about them in the comments. Let us know or send us a message about it so that we can hear what else you have had to discontinue PT for. Thanks so much for listening and everyone stay conscious. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.